I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at some verses in John chapter 17. If you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you can see the page printed for you in the bulletin. Looking at John chapter 17 today, beginning in verse 11 and going down through verse 19. These are Jesus' words. This is Jesus praying. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they, he's speaking about the disciples, are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be present and in our midst in these moments as we read your word, as we meditate on it, as we seek to understand what it means for us today. We know that we can't do this on our own, and so we pray for the Spirit to be at work, opening our eyes to see what you want us to see from this portion of your word. Above all, Father, help us to see our Savior, the Lord Jesus, how much he cares for his people. And by that, would you fill us with a sense of joy and encouragement and strength. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's put our imagination hats on for a second. Now, this illustration is only meaningful if you actually put yourself into this situation. I want you to imagine that you're living in the first century, uh, around 30 A.D., and you live in Israel, and you've met Jesus, and he's called you to follow him. And you have decided to follow Jesus, to be one of his followers. And now it's the night before his crucifixion. And he's told you that he's getting ready to go away. He's going to be leaving and where he's going, you can't go with him yet. And then right there in your midst, Jesus begins to pray. To pray to his Father in heaven. And as he's praying, he prays for you specifically. You're hearing the second person of the Trinity praying to the first person of the Trinity about you, about your well-being, about your persevering. Now, how do you think that would make you feel? The strength that it would give you, the comfort that it would bring you, the joy that Jesus himself is praying for you? That's what was going on 
in the first century with Jesus's actual disciples. We've been reading about it in John chapter 17. We've been looking at this prayer of Jesus. He's praying on the night before his death, the night before he's going to be crucified. And as we've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing these wonderful Advent themes coming out of Jesus's prayer, hope and peace and joy and glory, God's love. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus praying for himself, that he prayed and asked for the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son could glorify the Father by securing eternal life for all that the Father had given to him. And then last week, uh, we began looking at how Jesus started praying for his 11 disciples who were right there with him on that night before his death. Those who had been given to him, those who Jesus had given his word to, those who had believed in him. Today, we're going to look and see in these verses that Jesus is continuing to pray for these 11 disciples. But in these verses, he gets even more specific as he prays for them. We're going to see that he prays in particular for two things for his disciples, for their protection and for their consecration. Now, before we jump in. We'll just point out that it is the case that in these verses here, in verses 11, really verse 6 down through verse 19, Jesus is praying for his 11 disciples who were with him in that moment. And next week, we're going to see that Jesus prays very specifically and directly for us, those that would believe in the future. But here, he's praying for the 11. But even as Pastor Steve pointed out last week, I think it's, it's completely fine, it's appropriate, it's right for us to understand that this prayer also applies to us. Uh, we are Jesus' disciples now. We are his followers. We're living without his physical presence with us. And we're living in a world that hates Jesus, hates his word, and hates those that follow him. And we too need to be strengthened and encouraged and filled with hope and peace and joy. As we seek to be faithful, obedient, and loving followers of Jesus. So this prayer for these 11 disciples, by extension, is a prayer for us as well. And what does Jesus pray for? Well, he prays for the, the protection of his disciples. You can see that in verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they, meaning the disciples, are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. See this prayer, Jesus says to the Father, keep them in your name. Now, some of your translations may have by your name, by the, meaning the, by the power of your name, by the sovereign power, but most of the best commentators and in the ESV translation, if you have that in front of you, says in your name, keep them in your name. If you remember anything about ancient cultures, your name meant your character. It was the very essence of who you are. And so Jesus is praying to the Father and asking the Father to protect the disciples with the very character of God. To keep them faithful and loyal by his very character, by his essence. Which obviously includes as well his sovereign omnipotent power. And did you notice how Jesus addressed his father when he makes this petition for the disciples? What does he call him? He calls him Holy Father. That's the only time that that address is used for the father. Other places, the spirit is called holy and Jesus is called holy. But here, Jesus calls the father Holy Father. Holy. 
showing us God's transcendence, his his power, his omnipotence, his ability to protect and to keep. But he's also father. Showing us God's eminence, his his presence with us as a family. There's an intimacy here. And Jesus joins these together and calls on the Holy Father as the one to protect his disciples. That's what Jesus is praying for these 11 disciples. This is what he prays for for us. And, and why is that needed? Notice Jesus mentioned several reasons why he prayed this request for the disciples to be uh, protected. The first one is in verses 12 and 13. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. Here's one of the reasons why he prayed for their protection is that Jesus was getting ready to leave. While he was here on earth, he protected and he guarded his disciples. But the time for him to be with them in person was coming to an end. He was going away. He was going back to the Father. And although his protection, his guarding had been powerful and successful, he's going away and he knows that they need help. He says, not one of my disciples has has been lost except for Judas, the one who was just about to betray him. And even that lost one is not a failure on Jesus's part. It wasn't Jesus's fault, because as Jesus says here, Judas was lost in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Even before Judas was born and named, he was known by God. He had been prophesied that he would betray Jesus. So Jesus prays to the Father to protect the disciples, to keep them, because he was going away. But there's another reason why he prayed that prayer for them. You can see it in verses 14 and 16. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The second reason why Jesus prayed for the disciples to be protected by the father is that he knows that they are in a world that hates Jesus's disciples. They are not of this world. They have been chosen out of it by the Lord. And they have been given the words of Jesus, the truth of God. And that truth is in conflict with the beliefs and the values of the world. And so the world hates Jesus. And the world hates Jesus' disciples. It's certainly true for these 11 men. All but one of them would be killed by the world because of their faith in Jesus. Because they wrote the word of God, because they believed the word of God, because they lived out the word of God in the world. And of course, it's true for us, too. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen out of this world. You are not of it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have his word and you follow him and you follow what his word says, the truth of it. And that puts us in conflict with the the systems and the beliefs and the values of this world. So we must not be surprised when we experience experience hatred from the world. It's nothing new for God's people. But we don't lose heart. Why? Because Jesus is praying for our protection. Even though the world hates Jesus and hates his followers, he's praying for our protection. There's another reason why he's praying for protection. You can see it in verse 15. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus prayed that the Father would keep the disciples from the evil one. He's praying for our protection because he knows we have an enemy. Now, you might see a footnote in your text that says that the phrase there, the evil one, could be just translated generally as evil. Most of the commentators in certainly the ESV text here agree that with the context of what we're talking about is best translated specifically as the evil one. In other words, Jesus is praying for the father to protect the disciples because there is a devil and he is real. He has been defeated by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The war has been won and the devil has lost. But until Jesus comes back and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire forever, he can still do damage. He still wages battle against God's people. Now, as many wise people in the past have counseled, we should not think too little or too much about Satan. Don't think too little of him. He's real. He's powerful. He has the ability of the ability of wrecking havoc. He is the tempter. But don't think too much of him. He's defeated. He's in submission to the power and to the plan of God. And we know that Jesus has prayed and is praying for us to be protected from the evil one. There's another reason why Jesus prayed for the protection of the disciples. Notice in verse 11, he points out that the disciples are in the world. And again, in verse 15, the beginning part of it, he says, I'm not praying, Father, that you take them out of the world. Another reason why Jesus prayed for his disciples is that the disciples are not to hide. They are not to retreat. They are in the world. They remain in the world. And as we're going to see in a moment, they are on a mission in the world. And so they and we need protection from our Father. So these are the reasons why Jesus prays for the protection of his disciples. He knew he was leaving, and as he had been protecting them and guarding them, now he was going to be gone. He knew that they were going to experience hatred from the world. He knew that they had an enemy that was powerful, that wanted to do them harm. And he knew that they weren't going to be able to retreat or hide. They were going to be in the world, so he prays for them to be protected. And notice too here, Jesus says what the purpose of the Father's protection is, what it results in in the life of the disciples. Two things. The first is at the end of verse 11. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one. He's praying for the protection of the disciples, that they would remain unified in the bonds of love. That, that as they live in this world that, that hates them, as they deal with persecution and hardships, that they would have each other. That they would have fellowship and communion and unity, even as the Father does with the Son. Jesus knew that there were going to be many things that were coming for these disciples that would threaten their unity. And so he prayed. He prayed for their protection so that they would stay unified. It's true for us too, brothers and sisters in Christ. In general, with all of our true brothers and sisters in Christ around the city and around the world. And it's true for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this church family as well. Think of all of the things that Satan can use to try to break our unity and our fellowship. Politics. 
differing educational philosophies and practices, theological differences and non-essential beliefs, socioeconomic status. But what Jesus is reminding us here is that our union with Christ and therefore our union with our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be stronger and more important and of higher priority than the differences that we have on things outside of faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't have differences. Of course we do. Of course we will. But it does mean that we must be careful and vigilant to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. And Jesus is praying that for us. There's a second purpose for this protection, and it's in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus had been saying all these things to them. He's talking about the whole upper room discourse, and he's also specifically saying his words in this prayer. He, he's saying all of these things. He, he's praying for their protection. Why? So that the disciples may have Jesus's joy fulfilled in them. What is Jesus's joy? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross, that he despised the shame, that he accomplished his mission. And earlier in John 15, Jesus talked about his joy being connected to keeping the commandments of his father and following his father's will and glorifying his father. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the joy that Jesus experienced as he perfectly loved and obeyed his father? As he died on the cross and rose from the grave and then ascended back to heaven in the presence of the Father. The joy that the Father has for the Son and the joy that the Son experienced in the presence of his Father. And Jesus is here praying for his disciples to experience that same joy within themselves. As the Father answers this prayer of Jesus, Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. Now, don't misunderstand me. Joy is not the same as being happy. Joy is not just a feeling or an emotion. Christians get discouraged. They become unhappy. Can wrestle with deep discouragement and even depression. Jesus himself got discouraged. He had times when he was unhappy. He had times when he wept. He had times when he hit his limitations humanly. He, he dealt with sadness and grief. But the joy that Jesus speaks about here, the joy that he prays for his disciples to experience is different. The joy of Jesus is what transcends the circumstances of life. Think of it this way. Jesus' joy enabled him to endure the greatest moment of discouragement or darkness ever. The cross and separation from his father. It was his joy that enabled him to endure that cross and to despise the shame and to go through the darkness. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that same joy is ours because we are in Christ. A joy of Jesus is our joy. It's a joy that says no matter how bad life gets physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, we are secure in the everlasting love of God. That no matter how bad things get in our lives and in this world, what is coming for us makes it all pale in comparison 
that we have an eternal weight of glory that is ours and that is coming for us that far outweighs anything that we will experience in this life. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget and the things of this world become more important to us and more of a focus for us. So we need to remember. We need to be reminded that Jesus' joy is ours, really and truly. Something that goes beyond our circumstances and trials in this world. So the first thing that we see that Jesus prayed for his disciples here in this passage is that the Father would protect them and protect us. But there's a second thing that he prays for here. He prays for them to be consecrated. Now, that's a big word. It's not a word that we use a lot uh, today. Where do we get that from here in the text? Well, it's in verses 17 through 19. Jesus continues to pray for them and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, Jesus is using two different words here, consecrate and sanctify. But in the Greek, as Jesus was speaking this, it's actually the same word. The word hagiazo usually means to make holy. But then as we understand that, it gets a little confusing because Jesus says in verse 19, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. I, I make myself holy. But we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't need to be sanctified or made holy. He was without sin. He was already holy. It helps us to understand that this Greek word, hagiazo, is a, it's a bit more nuanced than just to make holy. It has the sense of being set apart. And in particular, being set apart for service to the Lord. Hence, uh, the ESV using consecrate here and one of the uses of the word. It reminds us of the, our much-loved hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. So Jesus is praying that His disciples would be set apart, that they would be dedicated and reserved for service to the Lord. And notice, it's just as Jesus was set apart for the Lord, so He prays that His disciples would be set apart and consecrated to the Lord as well. And notice that he mentions the basis or, or the way that that happens, how that it happens. You look again at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He says it again in verse 19, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That's, that's the basis of our being set apart, uh, of our being consecrated to the Lord. It's, it's through, it's by the truth, the word of God. That's the way that the Father sanctifies us and, and sets us apart and, and makes us holy. It's through the truth. It is through the Word of God. So that means a couple of very practical things for us. First, Jesus' disciples, including us, must be people who, who read the Word of God, who, who know the, the Word of God, who meditate on the Scriptures. This is the basis, this is the means, it's the tools that God uses to set us apart, to sanctify and consecrate us. It is the Holy Spirit working by and with the Word to shape us into the people that we are supposed to be. As we read it, as we sing it, as we sit under the preaching of it, as we meditate upon it, God is at work. 
When we don't spend time with God's word, when we ignore it, when we treat it as if it's not important, we're denying the very tool, the very means that God gives us to help us and to encourage us and to strengthen us and to set us apart. So God's people, God's followers, Jesus' disciples must be people of the scriptures. But a second practical thing that this means for us is that the word of God is authoritative. We don't stand in authority over God's word. God's word stands in authority over us. Pastor Rick Phillips put it this way. When biblical authority is compromised, the dam is broken and the flood of secularism and worldliness breaks in. If the Bible is not authoritative, anything goes. If the Bible is not authoritative, then everyone is free to pick and choose whatever they want to believe and however they want to live. If the Bible is not authoritative, we end up with a faith that is not biblical Christianity. But Jesus says it is the word of God that is used to sanctify, consecrate and set us apart. So it must be authoritative in our lives, what we believe and how we live. Notice not only does he tell us its basis, the the basis of our being set apart, but he also tells us the, the purpose for us being set apart. You can see it in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I have sent them, my disciples, into the world. God's people are, they are sanctified, they are consecrated, they are set apart for what purpose? For the purpose of being sent into the world on the mission that God gives to us. And notice Jesus references his own mission at the beginning of verse 18. As you sent me, he says. He points out that he had been set apart for the mission that the Father gave him to accomplish. Jesus was sent into the world on a mission with a purpose, with work to do. He came to proclaim the truth of God. He came to reveal the way that God was going to accomplish redemption of his people. And then he came and accomplished that redemption through his life and death and resurrection. Jesus had been set apart for the mission that God gave him. And Jesus was sent into the world. Notice what he says at the end of verse 18. So he now sends us. His disciples. We have a mission. The purpose of us being consecrated, the purpose of us being set apart is because Jesus is sending us on a mission. His mission was to die for the sins of his people. That's not our mission, but our mission is like his. It is similar to his. What does he tell us about our mission? What does he say in verse 14? He says that the disciples are not of the world. That means that we're to be different than the world. We're to stand out, have different beliefs and values and priorities. It means that we shouldn't be materialistic and consumeristic and relativistic. Those are the ways of the world. But Jesus says his disciples are not of the world. We are to be different. But notice he goes in verses 11 and 15. He points out not only are we not to be of the world, But we also know that we're not going to be taken out of the world. He said it both in 11 and verse 15. Christians are in the world. We're not taken out. Jesus says, I'm not praying to the Father that that you would remove them from the the world. He, He didn't intend for his disciples to be isolated. There was no intention for Christians to create monasteries or Christian communes where they tried to isolate themselves from the world. Christians are meant to know and to talk to and to interact with the people of the world, with unbelievers. 
to impact the world with goodness and the grace and the truth of God. And so he prays specifically, Father, I'm not praying for you to take them out. They are to not be of the world, but they are to be in the world. And that's what he says in verse 18. I'm sending them into the world. We're not taken out of the world. We're not to be of the world, but we are being sent into the world. And for what purpose? For God's mission. Jesus came and accomplished and affected God's mission, his mission of redemption and reconciliation. And now we as God's disciples are being sent into the world to participate in this mission. We have the privilege and the blessing and the responsibility of proclaiming the truth of what Jesus has accomplished. We have a message for the world. Isn't that what he says in verse 14? He says specifically, I have given them your word. Jesus has given the word of God to his disciples. And now he's sending his disciples into the world to proclaim that word and to proclaim the truth of God. And we are on that same mission. And so how do we do that? Well, we do it with our words. We tell people the good news of the gospel. We speak the truth of God and tell them about God's grace, about Jesus and who he is and what he accomplished. We, we speak and we tell people the truth. But we also show people the truth by the way we live. We, we, we live out the truth of God by our actions, by our deeds, the way that we live as neighbors, the way that we live as workmates, the way that we live as fellow students, the way that we live together as family members. We live out what the word of God says about how we are to live. And as we do that, we are taking the message of God's word and truth to the world. So what is our mission is to be not of the world, not taken out of the world, being sent into the world with the message that we've been given, which is the very word of God, the truth of God. And notice one last thing that we get from this about our mission that we are on. We have to remind ourselves that we're both protected and guaranteed success. Verses 11 and 15, Jesus prays for us that that the Father would keep us, that he would protect us. And who can overcome the protection of the Lord? Who is more powerful to harm us than God's plan to protect us? As we are sent into the world with the message of God's truth and grace, into a world that hates Jesus and hates us, we have the promise of God's protection. But not only that, we also have the promise of success. Success in the mission of God. Paul in Romans chapter 9 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. But on God who has mercy. We're not responsible for success in God's mission. God is. It depends on His mercy. And so as we go out into the world to participate in the mission that God has called us to, we do it not only with the hope that we will be protected, we also do it knowing that God wins in the end. There is success in the mission, not because of us, but because of God's mercy and because of God's grace. Author and pastor J.C. Ryle said this, The special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. The Christian is daily watched and thought for. 
and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them and his power must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what an encouragement this is for God's people. What joy this is meant to bring to us as we as we see Jesus praying for his disciples, those that would follow him, praying for our protection in a world that hates. We are protected by the Lord, praying for our consecration, for us to be set apart for the mission that he has given us, that he allows us to participate in. To not be of the world, but to be in the world as we are sent with the message of the good news of God's truth, of God's grace, and the gospel of Jesus Christ with a message that cannot and will not fail. Let's pray together. Father, encourage us with these words that you have given to us of Jesus' prayer. We know that he was praying for these 11 disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, but we also know, in principle, he's praying for us. He is our advocate. Pray that as we meditate on that truth, that you would encourage us. Help us to, to feast on that truth. Fill us and nourish us with it. And we pray that too as we come to this table. Would you fill us and nourish us with the truth of your word? We pray that you would do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.